The stars of tomorrow are almost here. The Phillies will be selecting in the first-year player draft. So we're talking draft. It's next Monday, but we're going to talk with Jeff Israel of philliesminorthoughts.com. We're also going to talk about the best and worst value in Phillies draft pick history, at least in the last 25 years. That should be a fun conversation. Speaking of fun conversations, the Phillies are still in last place. Yay. Phillies Nation podcast. Let's go. Yo, Phillies Nation. Welcome to the Phillies Nation podcast, episode 11. I'm Tim Malcolm, the editorial director of philliesnation.com, where you can go for news, rumors, information, and opinion, and much more. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash philliesnation. We're on Twitter at philliesnation. Check us out for memes and gifs and all that awesome stuff during the games. We have fun with it. We also try to be dark and depressing, but we have fun with it too. Find us on Instagram at philliesnation underscore. The podcast is on iTunes and SoundCloud. It's on Stitcher and Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, and YouTube.com slash Phillies Nation. Our show today, we're going to take a step back from the Major League team for a little bit today. Probably a good thing. We have Jeff Israel from philliesminorthoughts.com on the show. Phillies Minor Thoughts, by the way, is a great website. Matt Winkleman has been running that for a while and does a great job writing about prospects, both in the organization and still to come to the organization. And that's what we'll talk with Jeff Israel about. He writes about college and high school prospects and guys that the Phillies might draft, the first-year amateur draft, first-year player draft, I should say, is coming up on next Monday, and the Phillies have the eighth overall pick in the draft in the first round. We're going to talk with Jeff about what they might be thinking with that pick. Also, with some of the picks later on in the draft, they will be picking in the second round, third round, et cetera, et cetera. And if there's a general strategy for the Phillies in the draft this year. And it's an interesting thing to talk about because the, you never know with with these draft picks, you know, if any of them are going to be able to make a really quick ascension to the big leagues in a couple of years. And otherwise, it's just fun to talk about young kids who could be potential stars in the major leagues. Maybe the Phillies can snag one this year. We will talk with Kirsten Swanson later on about guys who did not make it that far. And uh, we had a really fun conversation about the best and worst value in Phillies draft history, at least of the last 25 years. There's been some good value. Guys who the Phillies have picked late in the draft who have done well for themselves. And then there's been some bad value. A lot of guys who the Phillies have picked in the first round who have not turned out all too well and have not made major league careers. So Kirsten and I had fun talking about some of those guys. If you like dark, depressing Phillies baseball, you'll love our conversation today. We're also going to talk a little bit with Kirsten about the current situation in the Major League Club, everything from Bob McClure, and if there does need to be a change made in some way with this organization, to what's happening with some of the hitters on the team, and if maybe trades down the line could be happening, guys like Tommy Joseph and Cameron Rupp, and even guys like Michael Franco and Odubo Herrera. And there's been a lot of talk about Michael Franco and his slump recently, if Maybe he should go to AAA to kind of get his mind off of being a productive major league player for a little bit. Corey Sharp of uh, philliesnation.com actually wrote about that this past week. And I think it's a good thing to entertain. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean that Franco is a a Dom Brown kind of player and he's never going to become a good major league player ever again or that kind of thing. You know, sometimes a guy who makes his way up to the majors really quickly needs a moment to kind of get himself back straight and, and, you know, figure himself out. And one of the problems that Franco seems to have is with his mindset. You know, he 
was the first young kid to come up in 2015, and he produced really well in that early going. I think some fans and a lot of people in the organization felt that he was the guy that we were going to hang our hat on and hope that he was going to lead this team into the next era. Maybe he's not built for that. Maybe he's not built to be the guy in the middle. That's okay. He might be a great role player. So maybe a demotion of AAA could kind of get his head straight and he could play around guys like J.P. Crawford and Nick Williams and Roman Quinn and Dylan Cousins and, and Reese Hoskins and so on and so forth and figure out that, oh, you know, I'm part of the bigger thing here. It's not just me trying to do all the heavy lifting. That might be the thing that ails him. But we'll talk with Kirsten in a little bit about that. Also, Odubel Herrera and why we should not be trying to send him out of town and why Odubel is great and fun and awesome. And they did prove that this past weekend. They had a terrible week before that. They played really bad against Miami and didn't look like they want to be on the field at all. But they came back against the Giants and offensively, at least, played very well, winning two games on Saturday and Sunday. Yes, they got shut out and blown out on Friday, but they came back over the last part of the weekend and played well. Ben Lively, I have a little theory that if players don't uh, have a lot of time with the pitching coach and the catcher in the Major League Club, they might actually pitch well. That's kind of a joke. Kind of not. But Ben Lively pitched well on Saturday, uh, gave up just a run in seven innings. He didn't strike out anybody, which is a little bit interesting to look at. But first start, very good. Good job, Ben Lively. Welcome to the big leagues, and hopefully he'll stay up for a little bit. And then Sunday, of course, the Phillies tried as they might to uh, keep the Giants from uh, losing this game. They did, at the end of the day, have the Giants lose the game because the Phillies won with a bunch of offense. Franco hit a home run. Herrera hit a home run. Galvis hit two was only the fourth player in Philly's history to hit home runs on both sides of the plate in the same game, joining the likes of Tomas Perez, Steve Jeltz, and Jimmy Rollins. All middle infielders. Very interesting. How about that? So as for what's happening news-wise, you know, Ben Lively's going to be here, I guess, for the foreseeable future. Vince Velasquez is on the DL for a little bit. He said the injury wasn't very serious, but the Phillies want to be cautious, of course, so he's going to be on the DL for probably, looks like, a couple weeks. Nick Pavetta is up now. He will be in the rotation. So it looks as if right now, and Zach Eflin, of course, got sent down after his bad start on Saturday, and I believe that Lehigh Valley put him on the DL because he's been hurting too. So now the rotation in Philadelphia looks like it'll be Aaron Nola, Jared Eikhoff, Jeremy Hellickson, Nick Pavetta, and Ben Lively. So that's now take, what, seven of this rotation? (laughs) And we're just going to see how it works. Uh, Hopefully Lively is the key player here that, you know, can have a couple good starts in the beginning of his career, and maybe there's something there with him. Uh, Lively doesn't have necessarily overpowering stuff. He can pitch to contact and do it well. He gets some good defense behind him, and he can go deep into games. So hopefully that's the book on him, and the Phillies can kind of ride that out a little bit. The offense looks like it's getting going now. Um... Herrera, again, as I said, playing well. Stop trying to run him out of town. People kind of forget that his defense is really good. And it's been much more improved since he came into the league in 2015. I think that's really a great thing to look at because defense, while it might not be half the game because guys don't get as many touches during the course of a game, it does mean a lot. Uh, and his defense has been really good. And he's one of the better outfielders in baseball with the glove. And, and that with his offense, which is probably going to improve, and he will you know, get out of this slump, I think. He's a better hitter than that. He's a good player, and that's all we need to say. I mean, he's not worth uh, trying to dangle out there for a trade. I don't think he's worth trying to run out of town. I think fans who are trying to get him out of here uh, are 
really not thinking straight about why he's had valuable. He's a really valuable player and he's fun to watch too. And the bat flipping is awesome. There was more stuff about his bat flipping this week at CSNPhilly.com. Jim Salisbury was talking to uh, uh, Odubel who said that he's going to keep doing it and he loves doing it. And why not? He should. Uh, it makes it fun to watch him play. It makes the Phillies fun to watch. So have fun because this team needs more fun right now. You know, they've been really, I guess, boring to watch, at times tedious to watch, and at times really grating to watch. They need some fun. They need some youth. They need an injection of energy. And Odubel definitely brings that. Maybe over the next couple of weeks, we'll see a couple of minor leaguers come up and, and finally make themselves known in the major leagues, whether it's Roman Quinn or Reese Hoskins. Uh, but there are some things that they're going to have to do first to ensure that those guys get playing time. So why don't we bring in Kirsten Swanson to talk a little bit about that. I have Kirsten Swanson here at philliesnation.com to talk a little bit more about what the heck is going on with this team right now. And, you know, we're recording this on Sunday at 12 o'clock before the game on Sunday. So who knows what's going to happen. But clearly it's been a really, really tough stretch for the Phillies. And yesterday, yes, uh, Saturday, I should say, they had the win and Ben Lively pitched great. But Ben Lively seems to be the exception of the rule. I mean, he went seven innings and he pitched really well, although he struck out nobody. Uh, but but the question here, you know, it seems as if no pitcher anymore for the Phillies can go beyond like the third or fourth inning. I was at the game last week where they played the Reds on Sat on uh, Sunday afternoon, and uh, you know Zach Eflin, who last year at one point was really really hot, he just can't get past four innings without giving up about three or four home runs. What what is going on with this team right now? Do you think that maybe there's something even bigger that's wrong with this team than just the pitchers? And 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 is it a coaching problem, Kirsten? Um, I think it's twofold. Last time I was on the podcast, I think it was the end of April, and the Phillies just came off the six game winning streak, and things looked good. But even then, we talked a lot about Cameron Rupp, and if whether he has the ability to be a major league catcher, let alone a starting catcher. And you had a lot of stats and data that pointed to that his inability to call games and framing pitches. And, you know, it's it's not solely his fault. You know, they're professional pitchers and they should be able to work themselves out. But then Bob McClure called Clyman Raphael a couple of weeks ago about his call, his pitch calls to Bryce Harper. And you have to think, you know, is it Rupp? Is he, you know, not framing pitches correctly, not calling the right pitches, which leads to more walks, which leads to throwing more pitches and just wearing down. I mean, Vince Velasco has always had trouble with pitch count and command. So you can kind of, Maybe he he has to fight his own battles, and but Aranola was hurt. But Jared Eikhoff, I mean, complete 180 from his first season and a half to not be able to get past really the fourth inning without walking five pitchers that he five batters that he did Friday night. It's just really out of character for them. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because last year the Phillies, especially early in the season, had this wonderful starting pitching where they were going deep into games. They were striking out tons of hitters. Uh, the Phillies actually had the best strikeout per nine ratio all time in April of 2016 for the month of wow. April. And now it's like they can't buy a bucket, you know, to use an old phrase. Um, and you're right. I think Cameron Rupp might have something to do with that. I mean, do you think that it, it might be wise for the Phillies to explore maybe – looking at trading Cameron Rupp at this point. I mean, they are definitely looking at Jorge Alfaro for next year. Maybe it's time to have a veteran catcher kind of play out the rest of the year. I think so. And I think I saw somebody wrote it on the site this week, or maybe it was Twitter, but you know, that was probably one of their biggest mistakes this off season is to not either re-signing AG Ellis or getting another veteran catcher with all these young pitchers. 
it was really, really a gamble relying on Cameron Rupp and Andrew Knapp um, to fill the gap this year, especially because it's not it's not fair to the young pitchers to have to grow with somebody behind the plate. Um, I think veteran presence would is would help would help now. So if anybody would take Cameron Rupp, I think contact should explore that option. Yeah, and remember they had Ryan Hannigan in spring training, who was playing very well right. for them, but then at the last moment. They decided to move on from Ryan Hannigan. They didn't want to give him an, a, an actual contract for the 2017 season. So he's, he, he didn't make it. So they decided to go with Rupp and Knapp. And those are two very unproven guys behind the plate. I mean, even though Rupp's been in the league for a couple of years, obviously people talk about his, his ability or inability to call games. And so that, that definitely is a problem when you have young pitchers who are trying to throw, you know, six, seven inning games and get their confidence up and develop better as starting pitchers in the majors. It's hard to do it when you have when you don't have all the tools necessary to be able to give them uh, on a regular basis. So as far as Matt Klentak and the and the front office right now, they haven't done anything. And I had mentioned this on Twitter. I posted this Phillies Nation on Twitter after the Miami series that they got swept by Miami. It looked terrible. They did not even look like they were responding to anything at the, in those games. They looked absolutely atrocious. And I felt like this was the time. You know, they've had so many closed-door meetings. Pete McCannon had the players in those meetings trying to go over, like, this is what we have to do better. But that had happened. They'd still lost a lot of games. I felt like this was the time for them to actually have some big, you know, front office change or coaching change or something like that. Do you think that the Phillies front office can afford to be patient anymore? They haven't done anything like that. But do you think they can still do you know, Matt Klentak has said our coaches are all safe right now. Do you think they can afford to do this with all the fans not even wanting to come to the ballpark anymore? I think they can afford to do it at least until the All-Star break. If the next, if the month of June is just as dreadful or even just a little bit better than May, then Klentak has to make some decisions. And if the pitching is still not getting past the fifth inning, and even now the bullpen, Hector Neris, unraveled in the ninth inning on Saturday's game. Yeah. I think Bob McClure... I mean, you have to do something. I would think Bob McClure might be the first one to go because Matt Stairs is in his first year as a hitting coach and still a young bat, still young hitters, and they can work themselves out. But the starting pitchers have regressed since last year. Hector Neris has regressed. Jay Margomas has regressed since last year. I would think Bob McClure would be the one to go by the All-Star break. But, again, it is still early June. Could have just been one awful, awful, awful month. Um, Franco and Herrera looked good on Saturday. They got some some clean hits and hopefully that can turn things around. But I think for now they can afford to be patient, but not much longer. I applaud your patience. I will tell you that. <laughs> it's tough. It's <laughs> it, really it, tough. It, it, it is tough because we've been doing this since 2015 with a bad team. And since 2012 with a team that's been just steadily going downhill. And it is tough when you're a fan and you just want to see this team perform better. And you think, and you know that guys like Franco and Herrera should be performing better uh, you want to be able to just say, go get better, but you know that it takes a long time in baseball. So it leads me to this. I mean, are you – I did a I did a piece maybe last year on Phillies Nation about, you know, who do people think are going to be a part of this 2019 team that should make the playoffs for the first time in however many years? Um, and a lot of people thought, oh, Michael Franco, definitely, right? Odubel Herrera, he was still kind of young at that point and not as proven, but people still thought Herrera would be – one of those core players. Do you think that they're safe at this point? I mean, I am of the belief that Herrera is definitely more safe because it's only been one bad month. But like Michael Franco, do you think that we can count on him as part of this core in 2018 or 19? 
No, I agree that Herrera is definitely more safe than Franco, and especially with the free agents that are coming out, like Manny Machado and, you know, 2000, I think it's after 2018, he's definitely not safe anymore. Um, they ha- he's, That's the only position, I think, that they don't have a almost ready major leaguer at third base, so they can easily go out and get somebody through free agency. And Herrera, I think, like you said, it's only been one bad month, and he seems to be an up-and-down hitter anyway gets confidence back, he can probably turn it around. But Franco has just, I mean, he has just looked lost. He is not yeah. seeing in the pitches. He's just swinging at anything. And I just, it's been really disappointing. Yeah, and at some point, I think you have to look at the guy as a whole and his ability to bounce back from slumps. Right. Um, you know, Franco seems to be the kind of guy where after last year, he had talked about how he put too much pressure on himself. Well, if that's who he is as a player, well, maybe he shouldn't be looked at as the guy that you rely on. Maybe he might need a change of pace. Maybe he needs a change of team, uh, a team that might want to use him in sort of a role player uh, position. And that might help him better where there's a team that has already a bona fide star and he could just slide in. The Phillies aren't at that place right now, so they can't do that with Franco. So it's tough. And, and, I, and I think you're right. I think, you know, for sure Herrera is definitely more safe than Franco at this point. But as far as this team right now, you know, there's a lot of things happening in Lehigh Valley that are making us kind of stand up and go, wait a sec, you know, why aren't these guys coming up? Obviously, we're going to see them come up at some point. But Nick Williams is playing well. Roman Quinn's been playing well. He got in, injured a couple of days ago. Obviously, Reese Hoskins is having a great season. Jorge Alfaro should be here next year. So what about some of these guys on the offense is this the time where we should look at Cameron Rupp? I, we talked about him, obviously, you know, maybe being traded, but Tommy Joseph or even Franco or maybe someone in the outfield, uh, is Odubel safe from a trade at this point? I still think Odubel is safe. Um, in terms of Tommy Joseph, you know, he wasn't originally part of the long-term plans. He has been a surprise the last season and a half. So I think if a team is willing to give you back some pieces that can help you in the future, whether it's some, you know, low-level starting pitchers or anything, I think Klontek has to explore it, especially with Reese Hoskins trailing right behind him. Reese Hoskins was part of, the, you know, they drafted him, they acquired him, and he was part of the part of the plan. Tommy Joseph, not so much. So you can definitely afford to take some calls and try to move him around. Yeah, and I, I mean, really, at this point, I think it's, you know, you have a lot of assets at a high level at a position that. Teams are going to, you know, when teams contend, they look at first base as typically a position where they need to bulk up and get someone who can knock the ball out of the park a little bit and be an offensive stalwart. Tommy Joseph kind of, he's not the best first baseman offensively, but he can help a team that is kind of in that middle ground. And I think if the Phillies want to be aggressive with it, they should look at shopping him. I mean, Hoskins may not be ready this, you know, he, he might struggle in the first couple months that he's in the majors. But someone had said on Twitter, and I think a lot of people are saying this right now, like let some of the prospects struggle together. And I'd be okay with that if we get to maybe yeah. August, September, and this team is really, really bad. Bring up Hoskins, bring up Williams, bring up Quinn, bring up you know maybe one other guy, and let them all struggle together and develop as a team, maybe Crawford. And, and there you go. Like That might actually bring something in 2018. But when you're at this position where Tommy Joseph is definitely the best hitter on the team, along with Aaron Altair, maybe it's time. I mean, Altair, too. Maybe it's time that these guys get dangled out there. And I don't know if they're going to get a lot in the market, but maybe, you know, get them while they're hot. You know, they might regress soon. So get them while they're hot, right? I completely agree, especially with Tommy Joseph. You know, he's 
he's not going to be part of the future. If Reese Hoskins has, continues his, the year that he's having, he is going to be the starting first baseman next year. So why not try to get something for him? I mean, it seems right. rather silly to let him just sit out there and then, you know, be a backup first baseman or come off the bench next year. It just seems rather silly. Right. Well, whatever happens, we're going to have to kind of bear with it over the next couple of months, and it might be really terrible, but uh, Kirsten, I applaud your patience, and I applaud the fact that you keep watching these games and <sighs> writing about them for us. <laughs> we, we have to figure out a way to, uh, to give you more, more sort of swag or something this year, because <laughs> you guys are really – it's, it's really tough, but uh, you guys, are, I appreciate what you guys are doing. <laughs> Kirsten, <laughs> thanks, th- thanks for coming on. Thanks, Tim. Take your eyes away from what's happening in Philadelphia right now because coming up, in fact, on Monday is the first-year player draft, the Major League Baseball first-year player draft. It's a big event. There are many, many, many players, college and high school, uh, getting ready to be selected by a Major League Baseball team to be put in their organization. And we wanted to talk about what the Phillies are going to do or maybe what they hope to do or plan to do or what some of the players that we might be wanting to you know, talk about, interested in for the draft. We want to talk about that here. So I have Jeff Israel here. He is a writer for philliesminorthoughts.com. It's a great website about prospects. You should go check it out. Jeff, welcome to the Philly Nation broadcast. podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Tim. So first off, uh, you write at Philly's Minor Thoughts. Just how much uh, have you written about prospects and, and college kids and high school kids? And, and how long have you written about that kind of stuff? And what got you interested in it? Oh, man. Um, Well, I've been interested in it for quite a while now. I've actually been um, a Phillies game day host for the last four years. I ended up leaving after last season's debacle. But um, (laughs) so, you know, I kept trying. But I left because I wanted to be a talent evaluator at some point because I really loved just – really getting into it and analyzing all these young players. And, you know, I didn't really have a platform. And uh, Matt Winkleman, who runs the site, they contacted me after, you know, uh, one of my excursions to Lakewood where I was going on a Twitter frenzy, the shooting video out of Sixto Sanchez and Nick Fanti and Adonis Medina uh, all over the place that weekend. So it was that's how that came about, and you know, the last I basically was just going around every every website, and it was just realizing, you know, there's not many blogs that will talk like really get into detail about as many prospects as possible, and mm-hmm. so, so I, I came to me like a few weeks ago, like why don't I just start what I would call the draft files and just start talking about these guys guys a little bit more. Or And that's where I'm at today. And I think right now I just posted uh, one on Pavin Smith today. I'm probably at 14 prospects in about eight or nine articles. So, <laughs> and, and this is – I'm right now in a marathon run on where I'm just going <laughs> to keep pumping everything out, out until I – exhausted by the time we get to June 12th. So, right. <laughs> so, but, it's, but it's a fun thing, thing to do. It definitely keeps my attention off the Phillies for a while. <laughs> Which is, we need that right now. <laughs> it's, but it's 
definitely a great distraction for me. I don't even I, – I've barely be, even been watching because I've been so focused on this for so long now. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is the time when people really focus in on what's happening down in high school and college. I mean, we really start to ramp it up at the beginning of June once we know draft season is upon us. And so it, it's a busy time, and there's tons of mock drafts out right now, and I'm sure you have your own sort of big board and the mock drafts and all that kind of stuff. We'll get into that. But first, um, you know, this year's draft, just talking about the big names at the top of it, um, I've seen a lot of Hunter Green. I mean, he was a guy who was on Sports Illustrated's cover, and everybody's talking about him. Um, what, what kind of draft are you seeing in 2017, as opposed to maybe last year's draft with Nick going first? Is this the kind of draft where you see that kind of, like, stud franchise-altering player being taken 1-1, or is it kind of all over the place? You know, what, what's the general consensus with, Who's out there in the beginning of this draft? I, you know, I think that the talent is maybe slightly better than it was last year. I would say that the college bats are pretty weak in this year's class, um, and that hurts it a little bit. Um, it, it's basically mostly, you know, there's a lot more high school arms and bats in this class as than there were last year, and I would say that, it's a little better than last year. I would definitely say there's a more clear-cut top-end prospect this year, and that would be Hunter Green. But Brendan McKay is also another quality player that I really like, along with Mackenzie Gore and Royce Lewis. People are trying to vault Kyle Wright lately from Vanderbilt up to the top, up of the draft. In fact, there have been a lot more connections with him and the Twins lately. Mm-hmm. which I'm assuming would be more of an under an underslot deal and also a high upside slash safe projection, so to speak, okay. because he definitely has some sort of floor to be a, be a back-end starter, but he definitely has a ceiling of an eight, of a number two. But Hunter Green is clearly – head and shoulders, the best prospect in this draft, in my opinion. Okay. Blazing fastball, fastball, could touch 100 pretty easily, 102 tops, ups, and a devastating spire. And it is funny, he shut himself down about a month ago because he was getting prepared for the draft, so he didn't actually finish out the season so he could prevent an injury. Three. And he's also very particular about his routine. And so he's already talking with every with the top three teams in his draft about what kind of routine he will get into when they get into the when they get into his their organization. It's okay. just to make sure that they won't change it. But yeah, I would say that I would say I'd probably like the top of this draft, the top a little bit more than last year's, but overall it's maybe only marginally better than last year's draft as a talent class, as I would say. Okay. Um, now, the Twins had the first pick in the draft, and, and I, I should ask you, actually, because we have a lot of listeners who might not know what the draft kind of entails. There's a lot more complications that go into the first-year player draft than, say, the NBA draft or the NFL draft. Uh, when you say underslot, that Kyle Wright could go first to the Twins with underslot. Now, talk about that a little bit and why a team might actually go 
um, quote unquote under slot and how that works and, and sort of what a strategy might entail from that. Sure. So for the most part, this is probably the only draft where you definitely draft most of the time the best player available, but every now and then, and you'll probably end up drafting, I think, somebody who is under slot. So every pick, particularly in the top 10 rounds, has a slot value. So the number one pick this year is about $7.7 million. And the Twins have a draft pool, pool, which is based on the first 10 rounds, of about $14 million. So what that means is is that if they really like a player in the later rounds, like in, the, in the, with their second pick or their third pick, pick, but these are guys that are that have a little more leverage. They can either go back, they can either honor their, their commitment as a high schooler to go to college, or these are like draft eligible sophomores who will just say, you know what. I'd rather just go back for my junior season. Mm-hmm. So, you know, last year, the Phillies decided, all right, we're not going to go after this talent and try and get even more talent by drafting a very good player in Mickey Moniak, but they actually ended up signing him for about two or three, I believe it was $3 million less than what the slot was last year. Here. So that allowed them to get guys like Kevin Gowdy in the second round and Cole Staub in the third round and Jojo Romero and Cole Irvin in the fourth and fifth round. So it's basically almost like it is basically Moneyball oh, yeah. in the draft still. It used to be like they could sign these ridiculous bonuses, but the cap makes it more interesting because it actually gives the high school player a little more leverage to let's say, all right, I could probably go to college and maybe be a first-round pick in the future and make more money because of my strong commitment. Mm-hmm. So what 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 the what do you think the Phillies are going to do? Just kind of switching it to them. What what do you think the Phillies might do? They have the eighth pick in the first round. Uh, there's a lot of names that are out there that have been associated with the Phillies and mock drafts. But what's your sense of where they might lean here to start? You know. <laughs> It's kind of funny. I thought about this a bit today before I came on. I was, I, I almost equated to the Sixers in a way because this is and the Eagles this year because it was basically like they're in a position where a lot of the talent is almost in the same level of draft, in the same level of class, and they really could do no, almost do no wrong here. Here, mm-hmm. maybe they could overreach for somebody in particular. But again, in the MLB draft, you play a money ball game because there are, you know, there are 40 rounds in the draft and you try to get somebody in the second, third, or fourth round that maybe you couldn't get and unless you get, had more money on your pocket. So, you know, it, I, I would say that they're leaning more towards college at this point, even though they've gone – I do think that they could still go the high school route. They went the high school route the last couple of years, particularly last year when their first three picks were all high school players. But they really haven't – but a lot of those picks were safe. They haven't gone for, with their top pick, a toolsy player, more like a 
high risk, high reward player since maybe the golden days. No, Larry Green. Between 08 yeah. and 2011, yeah. between 08 and 2011, it was, you know, Anthony Hewitt, Zach Collier, Kelly Dugan, and Larry Green, and Jesse Biddle. These are all kind of high upside plays that nobody else really maybe would have partaken in. in. But the Phillies went for that. And I guess those years made them more gun-shy. So they went, started going for this. So after they lucked into J.P. Crawford, who probably should have went earlier than he should have, the last three years have basically been the safe play. Hey, hey with Aaron Nolan and Matt Emhoff were safe plays in 2014. Cornelius Randolph, because of his advanced approach going into the draft, and then Scott Kingry, those are both safe plays. And then last year, Moniak and Gowdy, we're also safe plays because of Moniac's bat and Gowdy's pitchability coming out of high school. So my guess is they would go college because they would probably want a more advanced bat, but they would also want to, let's say, a play it safe. But they uh-huh. probably continue to go to the safe route. But I don't think they should ignore that or the high school picks in this draft because – there are some interesting names who have very high upsides that are probably right within their range based on, you know, what people are are talking about these kids is that I wouldn't really ignore it. Nick, you mentioned uh, Pavin Smith earlier, and that's the name that I've seen most associated with the Phillies. And as you yeah. said, played, saved, college bat, and he hits all those check marks. Tell me a little bit about Pavin Smith. I mean, he's a first baseman, which to me is like, do we need a first baseman right now at the upper levels, you know? But tell me about him a little bit. Redundant. Yeah. Uh, you know, he is a very good bat. And he's – but I, I will say this. Is he Every year he has been getting better and better with his plate discipline. In his first year, he ended he helped Virginia win the College World Series as a freshman and was in the middle of that lineup. But he struck out 40 times and walked 26. The next year, it went from 36 walks to 23 strikeouts. Hmm. This season, as they enter the tournament, it's now at 36 walks to nine strikeouts, which is absolutely absurd. So clearly the bat has a pretty darn good chance to play at, at the major league level. I, I would say that there there wasn't many you – know, as I was looking at it, I wouldn't say there were many weaknesses, but if I had to point to one thing, he could probably be beat down and out because I do think he may, like, over-rotate on his swing at times and his back foot and his lead foot kind of blocks him from kind of getting there, there because he's over-swinging a bit. It, but for the most part – He's a very, very good bat, and it's hot. And at that point, there's not many other college bats around him. So if the Phillies wanted to go that route with a bat, he'd be the only pick. And you're right. Reese Hoskins and Tommy Joseph present a conundrum, but the one thing I would say is this. It's also about – it's not always about making the – you know, getting the best prospect and thinking – he will get there, but if there are other people blocking him in the way, they and all three of them could be good, or maybe only two of them will be good, 
you have very interesting trade fodder. This is also what the game, how this is played as well. It's about getting good prospects either to put on your team or to get that established star later. Mm-hmm. So if Pavin Smith's bat is that good, it's worth considering. Um, just for that reason as well. And so, so uh, then switch off to the risky pick. Uh, you mentioned, you know, they could go the opposite way and go with the, the risky toolsy guy. Uh, is there anybody in that range that if there was the risky pick, like that would be the guy in your mind that they should get? There are two. And they're both high school outfielders, and they could both be five tool stars. And Austin Beck, Austin Beck, who was actually one of my first projections, actions or first reports, was, you know, I really liked him a lot. And originally I actually thought he had a string similar to a certain kid from Millville. But mm-hmm. after a little further looking into it, he's got a bit of a – his load's a little bit heavier, and I think that he would struck you know, struggled down, whereas Mike usually, where the, the other guy struggles up, he probably struggled more down, which is where a lot of pitchers like to live. But those are like slight mechanical adjustments. He missed most of the summer last year with an ACL tear, but he's come on very strong with a very good spring. So he he probably would have been top 10 at this point in the fall. All but he probably but he ended up up lower and now he's risen like helium again. So he 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 would be an interesting pick to me. The other guy is Jordan Adele. And I did not like what I saw from everything from all the in game footage last summer of him. Him from all the showcases because it looked like he was going to have trouble with timing. His legs looked like his knees looked like they were crossed up and almost touching each other other with his legs apart. And I just thought that he would really struggle as a swing and miss candidate, but he made a lot of good adjustments from every video that I've seen this year. And he's a freak <laughs> and he's six, three, 200. And from what I've read, every time he gets on the, off the bus, people cannot believe he is a high school kid because he, he's chiseled as a rock. So, how, you know, he's got plus arm, plus power, plus speed. He could do it all. The only question, just like Beck, would be the hit tool well, in the future. But I think he's got the determination and the character to maybe – Exceed that. Now, a lot of a lot of mock drafts actually have him being selected right after the Phillies going to the Brewers at night, which would actually make perfect sense because that's what the Brewers like to draft. They love those toolsy outfielders. But I w- those two guys in particular are very interesting to me because it's mostly just maybe a couple of mechanical tweaks for them. But they could be very special players. And the last couple of years, years, I don't think the Phillies were in a position to draft those type of players. But with their system starting to build up, you could probably take a bigger gamble on that. 
So, so do you think that uh, in the first few rounds, especially the Phillies might target some gambles, and, and maybe this is that kind of a year? I mean, last year they went with a bunch of high school plays, but again, as you said, they were conservative. Do you think that they might be a little bit more uh, more wild this year, more radical with some of these picks? I, I, I actually do because I actually, again, it goes back to what this class kind of di- dictates. There's not really many college bats are considered strong in this class, not the greatest in college bat class. And, you know, after the first round, it's kind of a mixed bag in terms of the college arms. So most of the, bet, so most of the talent is actually in high school this year. It's mm-hmm. just a – and I would say most of them are probably going to get there, are going to sign. Some of the better – you know, there will be some ones that have – maybe strong commitments that the Phillies could do. So it all kind of depends. They're in a unique situation because I don't think there's much they can do from an underslot deal perspective even in this draft. So maybe it's just a matter of having to match, you know, the four point, the nearly $4.8 million they have on their first pick. Mm-hmm. So th- this is a very – strange draft. There are only really two college players that I may select at, at number eight with in Pavin Smith and then Alex Fiedo. And then earlier today I thought uh, maybe David Peterson of Oregon as kind of like an underslot deal because the, and also kind of like a need base as well uh, because the Phillies really lack left-handed depth in mm. their system for pitching. Yeah. Pitching. It's really, it's really not good. So, um, but I, but I would say this is a draft that they do should really think about out going more for the risk in this draft because they played it safe the last few years and they and I think they will come out pretty well on a lot of those picks and their upper minors are pretty stacked right now in hitters. Yeah. So, and let's face it, at this rate, they're going to have the top pick in next year's draft. After <laughs> so they could technically try and stretch this out and take those risks. But a lot of the indications from the last two years says that they'll play it safe, but I don't know if they can do, I don't know if they can do it as much as they did the last couple of years under Johnny Almaraz as the scouting director. Mm-hmm. Now, so so with that, give me some names, uh, you know, as many names as you want, sort of after that first round, uh, you know, whether they're people that the Phillies could take a risk with or just guys who you think would be really, you know, the right fit here. Um, give me some names of people in the second, third, fourth, fifth round that might appear in, in, in some of these uh, mocks or at least in your mind. Well, one of the guys that I originally set out, one of my first reports on a second-round guy was actually Seth Romero, who is a troubled, troubled kid from uh, the University of Houston. He got kicked off the team. He got suspended multiple times and then and, and then eventually got kicked off the Houston team, which is actually one of the better teams in the country in early May. So he's a troubled kid, and, and I wonder if, that will get him enough to fall maybe to 45. He could end up being a mid-rotation 
starter. He could, or he could be a really strong reliever in the bullpen because of his fastball slider combination. But it's just a matter of getting him into the right situation. Other than that, there, there's a lot of intriguing names that I kind of think would be good. I think they could go to. I think they could go to catching route with MJ Melendez as mm. who I actually really like as a future catcher catcher in this draft in a weak crop. Uh, you know, I would think about uh, Quinnen Holmes, speedy outfielder from New York, from a high school in New York. Or it's not most of the – but I would say most of the guys that I would say in the second, third rounds I would target are pitchers, which are guys like Hans Cruz, Hans Cruz, or Tristan Beck. Like Blaine Knight from Oklahoma is interesting to me because he's skinny as anything. Mm. But he's got all he's got all the he's got a really good fastball. He's got really good good breaking ball. He but he's really skinny as hell. So he he may go back but I wouldn't be surprised if that would be an overslot deal, deal as well. Mm-hmm. But again, there's a lot more. I would say over the next week, most of my research is going to be tending to a lot of these second round picks because I, at this point, I've covered most of these guys who are in the first round. Um, um, <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> excuse me. Um, but yeah, I would definitely say that. I would say this. In the second round, it's more likely that they probably draft the pitcher based on how everything looks in this okay. draft. Because a lot of a lot of these projections have have in terms of rankings, a lot of pitchers right in that I would say that thirty five to fifty five range, which is probably generally where I would look. Look, if you're just looking on rankings alone, that's probably what, that's most of what the pitchers are. I mean, most of the prospects in that range are all high school pitchers. So they, okay. so that would probably be where I look with their second round pick. After that, you know, they could. Pro- I would say at this point they should probably load up on as many pitchers as possible because it's not it's not like they have a great system of pitchers. Pitchers. They're all good. There's a lot of good ones in the lower minors, but there's not enough of project there's not enough projectable pitchers, especially once you look past the upper mine. What's going on in the upper minors or the majors right now. Right. So they could use a lot more projectable arms. Arms in the, between the second and fourth rounds. Okay. So so basically what you're telling us right now is who knows what's going to happen uh and and anything can kind of happen uh on Monday when the draft happens. Um is that fair to say? <laughs> I yeah, be, yeah, and again this goes back to how I see this class. This class is kind of almost all lumped together. Like there are probably a there are a bunch of guys between 20 and 50 who I could somehow be ending up in the top 35 somehow. Mm. Oh, like a lot of guys who are probably in the 50s or whatnot. So 
just for the just again for the underslot uh, deals deals. But the this is a draft that I think would be better, better for the Phillies to kind of. But again, I would say that this is a draft leaning more towards high school. Yeah, high school, and a lot more on the unsafe side uh, than the safe side. So, if that's the case, if I'm the Phillies, I wouldn't try I to outthink myself here. I would. Definitely go after somebody who, you know, a lot of people, a lot of scouts, scouts or experts would clamor for or with their tools or with their stuff. Uh, even if you have to spend every day with them to fix their mechanics and to work on their timing, it's probably worth it with this class. As the prospect, because there isn't enough bets out there. Well, whatever happens on Monday, I'm sure we will have to. We will. We will not. You will not take any time to debate what is right or wrong, because uh, that's how we are in this fair city of ours. But it'll take some time to figure it out, and um, I'm sure you'll be chronicling it along the way at SilliesMinorThoughts.com. Please go to that site. Check it out. It's a really good site. Matt Wentzman does a great job of it. Uh, Jeff Israel of uh, PhilliesMinorThoughts.com, and you're on Twitter, correct? Yeah, uh, you can follow me at jphils90. jphils90. Go follow him on Twitter, and uh, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast, Jeff. Absolutely, Tim. Thank you for having me. Well, that's now kind of segue from the current Phillies draft prospects and what we hope they can do in this year's first year amateur draft, first year player draft, I should say, to some of Phillies drafts of the past and some of the best, some of the worst. And the Phillies, I will say this right now, they've had a lot of bad drafts and a lot of bad picks. So what we decided to do, I have Kirsten Swanson back with me from philliesnation.com. We want to go through the best and worst value that the Phillies have had in the draft over the last 25 years. So I asked Kirsten to pick a best value and a worst value, uh, and I did the same thing. So, Kirsten, let's start, let's start good because the Phillies are known for bad, and we can talk longer about the bad. Um, what is the best value draft pick that you found over the last 25 years in Phillies history? So I have to say it was a lot of fun going through the last 25 years of draft history for the Phillies. I mean, maybe fun is the wrong word because you kind of see how <laughs> how many misses there have been. It's but one that stuck out was Ryan Madsen because he was drafted in the ninth round in 1998. And we all know he wound up being the bridge to Lidge um, in 2008. But he was just really durable from, you know, he he played in one game in 03. But really from 04 to 2011, he was, you know, he was called upon in so many key situations out of relief he was a starting pitcher for one season I think but um he was really was the steady force in that bullpen and he kind of took any role that was given to him you know he was the British to Lidge but he wouldn't mind coming in and if he had to if there was a blowout or whatever and even now he's in his 12th season and he's pretty durable for Oakland I think he has like a 1.66 ERA in 23 appearances I mean he's had a nice career for himself what I remember about Matson is, I mean, he was a starter when he came up with the Phillies, and they really tried hard to put him in that rotation with Gavin Floyd, and I believe Eric Milton was in that rotation at the time, and Kevin Millwood uh, just didn't work out for him. But I remember in 2008, as you said, 
it just seemed like once they hit sort of the end of the year in the playoffs, he immediately like magically got this 98 mile per hour fastball that nobody saw coming. <laughs> like I like he was throwing 94, or 95 or something in the regular season, and then in the fir- and like the first time he came in against Milwaukee or something like that, he threw 98, and you're like, well, who is this guy? Where did that come from? And he became this like exceptional late innings relief guy who's still an exceptional late innings relief guy. I mean, a lot, he made a lot of money for himself. It's amazing what he did for himself. It really is. And I mean, I was, I knew he was still playing obviously in Oakland, but I don't see Oakland a lot. So when I looked up his stats, I was really, really surprised to see that he's still, he's still pitching really well. So my best uh, was Ken Giles. He's the best value that I found. Uh, and I know there's others around that, around that sort of range, but he was picked in the seventh round in 2011 and Giles basically immediately was a reliever. I mean, he was drafted just as a reliever. And it's hard when you're drafted as a reliever to make it to the majors as a reliever because a lot of relievers are failed starters along the way, that kind of thing. And relievers have a lot of high-octane stuff, and they could fall apart very quickly. But Giles just shot up the system. He was uh, in the Gulf Coast League. Then he immediately went to Lakewood uh, to start 2012. He got a promotion to Clearwater in the middle of 2012. 2013, he was in Clearwater again, but then he went to Reading uh, in 2014, and his 14th season, he was in Reading for like a month, then he went to Lehigh Valley for a month, and then the Phillies called him up when uh, our old friend Mike Adams went on the DL, and he immediately just made himself known as this great, you know, high-energy, high-fastball pitcher, and I think we knew around his time in maybe Clearwater Reading that he had really good stuff that his fastball could hit the high nineties, even a hundred. Uh, and he had this good slider, but once he got to Philly, it was like, it was a revelation. This guy could throw a hundred miles, a hundred mile Giles. And he had this slider that was just devastating. And he, the Phillies parlayed that into a really successful reliever for a couple of years. And then a trade where we're still trying to figure out what the best of that trade is. But Vince Velasquez has been a major league starter and at times serviceable and, Tom Eshelman is doing a really great job in AAA Lehigh Valley right now, and you know they're still trying to figure out what they have with Mark Appel, obviously. But it's a they they turned Giles a, a seventh round draft pick into something pretty good out of that out of that trade. I agree. I mean, you know, we're still trying to see the fruits of the trade and who won that deal. But like you said, Vince Velasquez has the stuff. If he can turn it around and get control of his of his fastball and go a little deeper in the games, I think he's going to be part of the future, and that's that's something that's impressive. So as far as the worst, and this is the fun part, because there's a lot of really bad draft picks in Philly's history, especially the last 25 years. Hey, Tim. Yeah, I'm there. Are you there? Tim. You there? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hello. Hold on. Are you there? Hold on. Tim? Hold on. Okay. You there? You there? That, that was the first one I just heard you. You said, hold on. Oh, do you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. I, I actually just like hit a, like a tab and like a video popped up, so I think that might have been Oh, it. that's annoying. Yeah. All right. So you good? Yeah. Okay. I'll just start with as far as the worst. Okay. As far as the worst draft picks, and this is the fun part because there's a lot of bad draft picks in Philly's history, especially the last 25 years. Um, who did you find? Who is the worst draft pick, worst value that you found in the Phillies draft history the last 25 years? Okay, so I was teetering between Joe Savory in 2007 just because he was fresh in my mind. But then I think I'm going to go with Reggie Taylor. He was an outfielder. He was drafted in the first round, 14th overall in 1995. Um, 
he was his scouting reports varied from you know he can be an all star to he really would be below average hitter. But Mike Arbuckle took a chance, like he did often, and only <laughs> he wound up only playing. 14 games for the Phils, was traded to the Reds, was there probably like two seasons, and then was out of baseball by 2005. Interestingly enough, the reason why I went with him, he was picked 14th overall in 1995, and Mr. Roy Holiday was picked 17th overall just three picks later. So I found that to be interesting. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, the Phillies love their rangy, toolsy outfielders. Yep. Speaking of which, uh, the guy I found is uh, Chad McConnell. And I, I decided to go with 25 years. I didn't realize that 25 years ago the Phillies picked this guy. He was the number 14 pick, or excuse me, 13 pick in the 1992 Major League Baseball first player draft, first year player draft. Um, he came out of uh, uh, he came out of college. So he was a he was originally drafted by the Twins in 1989, and then he went to Creighton University. He played really well for Creighton. Uh, he, you know, was one of the best players in the country and the Phillies decided to draft him. And then he went through the system and immediately showed that he was just not, he couldn't hang with other guys. Uh, he came in at age 22. The Phillies ambitiously moved him to Clearwater immediately and he couldn't really hit in Clearwater. He did hit the next year when he was 23. So he earned a promotion to Reading and he spent two and a half seasons in Reading, not being able to get his way out of that place. Uh, in his last year, 1996, he hit 247 with a 345 on base percentage, 12 home runs, and 50 RBI. You know, those are kind of whatever numbers, but he was 25 right. years old in double A. Like, at that point, it's like, can you hack it? I don't think so. The great thing about Chad McConnell. Yeah, I mean, they should have stayed at that point. Yeah, the great thing about Chad McConnell, though, at this point is. 2015, I found a story that was on PenLive.com. So apparently he stayed around the Pennsylvania area. I guess he, I guess he decided to stay around Reading. Um, he, he, in 2015, was uh, a member. He was honored by the uh, Creighton University Hall of Fame, right? So he was honored for his baseball playing. But this story at PenLive.com has him as an adult probation department officer. So apparently Chad McConnell decided to leave baseball. He wasn't happy with how it was going. He decided to stay around the central PA area and became a probation officer. How that's wild. That? I mean, that's a piece right there. I'm so curious to go back in the last 25 years of Phil's first rounders or even second rounders and see what their careers are outside of baseball right now. Um, that's amazing. It's funny. I, I, give him kudos, I give him kudos for staying around central Pennsylvania, first of all. Yeah, no, that, that, that to me is, I think, the biggest thing. In, in 2000, and, and no offense to anybody who lives in Central Pennsylvania, right. I shouldn't say that. But in 2015, uh, in this very story, apparently uh, the proclamation that was read to him when he got the Hall of Fame uh, thing in Creighton, um, the guy who read him the proclamation was a Phillies fan and said, we may need you. Are you still available? If Chad McConnell couldn't hack it in 1992 or 1996 as a 25-year-old in Reading, as bad as the 2015 Phillies were, they wouldn't be able to use him in 2015. <laughs> No, and I feel I would have maybe took a trip to the Walt Whitman Bridge if that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think like if we could put together a team of all the bad Phillies draft picks over the past 25 years. Like you could have McConnell in the outfield with Reggie Taylor. Um, the ghost of J.D. Drew could play the other outfield position. <laughs> uh, you know, like Brian. Uh, uh, I don't know who who would who would be on the mound. Like 
Like we got Dave Coggin oh, on the man. mound, maybe Carlton Lower could be the second starter. Um, between like 1990 and 1998 or so, the Phillies had just absolutely bad draft luck, and then they finally got Pat Burrell, and things kind of turned around for them. But it's it's been a really bad history for them. It, it has been. Um, I know Pat Burrell. I have a soft spot in my heart for Pat Burrell, but you know, for a first overall draft pick, he turned out to be a really great. Uh, not maybe not a great player, but a really but not worth it. He was worth it. No, for sure, especially for the Phillies. Yeah, I mean, and then I'm looking at like. 2007, Joe Savory. 2008, Anthony Hewitt. 2008, Zach Collier. Uh, two first-round draft picks. 2010, Jesse Biddle, who's still mm-hmm. kind of uh, – he might be slaving away in the in the Braves organization, I think, at this point. I Maybe think so. Baseball. Larry Green in 2011. Shane Watson, who's still in the uh, – he's still in the organization in 2012. Mitch Geller in 2012. And then J.B. Crawford. Man, get, get it right this year, guys. <laughs> um, oh, man. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed for sure. We'll be watching next week when the draft happens. Kirsten Swanson, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Tim. My thanks to Kirsten Swanson for coming on and talking the Phillies with me this week on the podcast. Also, thanks to Jeff Israel of philliesminorthoughts.com for coming on and talking draft. I think Jeff is right on with his assessment. This is a real opportunity for the Phillies to be aggressive and experimental. In the draft this year, if there's not a lot of college bats early on, then why not maybe go after some prep players and stack the lower minors with a lot of undeveloped talent that could be developed really well in the system. Uh, The Phillies have a lot of depth in that upper levels right now, and they have some depth in Lakewood and Williamsport, and I think it's a really good opportunity to bring some competition into those levels. So do it if you're the Phillies. Why not try to bring in some real young talent to develop over the next many years? The draft will be Monday, next Monday, on MLB Network. So check that out. The Phillies have the eighth overall pick, and then they'll make 39 more picks. So that'll be a fun time to uh, prognosticate and dream a little bit about what the Phillies might do in the future. Thanks to bensound.com for the music for the podcast. Still looking for your audio. If you have any theme music or bumper music that you want to share with us and have on the podcast, we would love to feature it. Check it out. You can find the Phillies Nation podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, and on YouTube at youtube.com slash philliesnation. We're on philliesnation.com, facebook.com slash philliesnation, and on Twitter at philliesnation. So the Phillies have, um, we're also, I should say we're also on Instagram at philliesnation underscore, if I didn't say that already. The Phillies have a series coming up in Atlanta starting tonight. They are playing for the first time at SunTrust Park. The conveniently out of Atlanta area ballpark that the Braves now own, even though Turner Field was not that old. Yay. We get to have four games against the Braves. Woohoo! Can't wait. Uh, and then they go to St. Louis, I believe, for the weekend, which should be an interesting series. And then it'll be off to Boston for two games. And then they come back home for two games to play Boston. So a lot going on. Boston next week should be. Woohoo! Can't wait till the Red Sox fans come into the ballpark. Yay. Come on out. Come see the Phils uh, at Citizens Bank Park. I know there's a lot that's not good about the team, but the Fanatic is here. And by the way, Dan Walsh has a great piece about the Fanatic on philliesnation.com. Somehow I got there. Cheap plug. Uh, But there's also other things. Food, fun, family, all the Fs. Seriously, all the Fs. Huh? Right? Am I right? Am I right? 
This has been the Phillies Nation Podcast. I'm Tim Malcolm. We will see you next week.